0: Today's Skim from the Couch is presented by H&R Block. At the Skim, we're always trying to find ways to make our to-do list smaller. Whether it's a new app, the 135 method, or any other kind of productivity hack, you can never save enough time. We know it because we've tried everything, and at the end, we just want more time. That's especially true during tax season. That's why there's H&R Block. More on that later. For now, let's get into the episode. Okay. Yeah, so failure is kind of
1: like um, like, a, like a hike. When you're doing it, it really sucks. And only in hindsight or when you're at the top of the mountain can you look down and be like, oh, look what I did. It was so great. But during the process, it was not fun.
2: I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle
0: Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch.
2: This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it. From the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch?
0: So please welcome Tracy Sun to the couch. Tracy is a serial entrepreneur and an expert in making big changes in her career. After she graduated from college, she worked as a research scientist, but then she switched things up and got into business and fashion. Over her career, she's helped start and build several companies. Not all of them have been successful, and we'll talk about that. But today she's the founder and senior vice president of New Markets at Poshmark, the platform you probably use to buy and sell your own clothes and accessories online. Tracy, welcome to the couch. Thank you.
1: I'm so excited to be here.
0: Question number 1. Skim your resume for us.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. That's a that's a good one to start with. So, my I've had two careers so far my first one was in neuroscience so i studied biology that was casual yeah (laughs) my first career was in neuroscience (laughs) (laughs) clearly i'm not doing that anymore i was a science geek i loved studying human brain human behavior trying to get a better understanding of why we do the things we do and i spent my first few years of my career in that i was working with alzheimer's and parkinson's patients i was going to be a doctor in my in my brain and uh, that that did not work for me. Um, after a certain point in time, I was like, "This, this is interesting, but not enough. I want more."
0: Wait, how? What? Yeah, are <laughs> sorry. I'm like speechless because, like, literally, what you're talking about, caring or studying Alzheimer's, right? Like, how? What wasn't enough for you?
1: You know, when you're younger, and I, I think everyone goes through this to some extent, you're not exposed to that much. So, I was exposed to science. I was exposed to medicine. I'm like, oh, this is cool. This is better than accounting and I don't like law. Right. So I'm going to go into medicine. And as I started to um, meet more people and hear about what they were doing, I was like, "Ooh, that's cool, too. So I, I think I could have had four or five careers that would work for me. And, th- and moving into fashion just happened to be the one that I found in my early 20s. And so I I moved into that. But who knows? I mean, in a different life, I, I don't know, could be working at NASA or something cool like that.
2: What is something that isn't on your resume that people would be surprised to know? Oh, I used to be a lifeguard.
1: Uh, I, I also worked as an EMT at the Central Park Medical Unit here in New York City for, uh, for a year. I would ride the ambulance. Um, and uh, I also used to do, um, was like a CPR certified uh, at my local high school. How'd you go from neuroscience to Poshmark? So neuroscience was definitely flexing. Like the the nerdy part of my of myself, uh, it wasn't flexing the creative part. And so what I ended up doing is I went back to school. I went to business school, and from there transitioned into fashion. And I did that by I met um, the founders of a local company here in New York called uh, Brooklyn Industries. I met the husband and wife team behind that. Loved what they were doing. Loved the brand. They were it was so cool. They're artists building messenger bags out of old billboards right i thought that was fascinating and so i joined them and helped them grow their business and that was when i was really just fascinated by fashion and i i've been in the industry ever since
2: what is your day-to-day you not only are a co-founder of poshmark but you're also the senior vice president of new markets which i'd love to know what that really means but what what does your day-to-day look like
1: My day-to-day is a lot of meetings. Um, My role is and has always been really, really cross-functional. So I don't have the freedom and flexibility to just work in my own office, in my own silo. So uh, it can be meeting with my team and checking in on various projects and trying to help them unblock some things that can make us move faster. It can be working with a data or product team on a feature we're we're building, the marketing team, on checking in on how our consumers are um, adopting something we've just launched. um, Or it can be things like being out and about meeting with our community, because for Poshmark, we're built off of all the people that buy and
2: sell on our platform. So it's now a good time for my confession. I'm addicted to Poshmark. (laughs) Um, She really is. I really am. I play on it all day long. You are not alone. It's okay. I know, but I also don't know, like, I feel like I could be making more money, so I would love some advice. We're gonna we're gonna talk about that. Okay. Um, but how do you? How much of your day to day in um, you know overseeing new markets? How much of it is community facing? How much of it are you actually meeting your community? A, a lot. So it's really hard
1: to do anything at Poshmark and not have the community face to face time with your community at some point. Um, Mainly, that's just a good idea if you're in a consumer-facing company to really stay in touch with your customers. But for Poshmark, it's even more important because everything we do is built off of people. And um, and if we lose touch with our people, then, then we don't have anything. So, yes, and uh, I, I try to get out as much as possible, and um, sometimes I wish I could do it more.
0: So one major thing to know about your career is that you are a serial entrepreneur. Um, and being part of a serial entrepreneur, I'm assuming, one big thing is failing, um, <laughs> especially in startups. It's probably the, the number one thing that we think we should do more of and push ourselves to do more of, but it's not easy. Um, Poshmark wasn't the first fashion company you started. Tell us about the first one.
1: Yeah, so failure's kind of like um like a like a hike. When you're doing it, it really sucks. And only in hindsight or when you're at the top of the mountain can you look down and be like, oh, look what I did, it was so great. But during the process, it was not fun. So um I have had lots of failures in my career. And um one of the biggest ones, which I think you're referring to, is my um is a startup that I founded before Poshmark, was also in a technology-based fashion company. And um, we, we ran it for about a year and just a few months post-launch, and then we folded the company. And the reason we folded it is that our site just went down and everything broke. Um, the database was corrupted. The user experience was broken. The website was down. And we couldn't bring it back online without more money. And then this was during the um, financial crisis in New York. So no, one's, no one was willing to invest in this newfangled fashion idea. So we ran out of money and uh, and then we shut the company How down. How big was your team? The team was about 12 people.
2: What was the moment that you realized you had to tell everyone that you guys were shutting down?
1: You know, the worst part about it is there wasn't one moment. It was like a, a slow, painful death. And that was probably one of my learnings is I could have chop that off a little bit faster to spare everyone that pain. Um, but we would keep getting just a little bit more money or, you know, we would fix one thing and then maybe that would take us back online. And so it was a period of about, uh, I'd say, four or five months where things were going south and the writing was on the wall. And and uh, we we tried to, to hold on to it.
0: What was that like as a founder
1: going it through that terrible. experience? It was terrible. It was terrible. It's the, you know, if it's just you, you can deal with it, right? Cuz like how bad can it be? It's just you. When you start to become responsible for other people, that's when your heart just breaks. And I think in hindsight, you know, I tried to let the team go when when I realized what was going on, and nobody wanted to leave. They all said, "No, we'll fight. We'll, we can do this. This idea is great. I don't want to give up." And in hindsight, I would have been a better leader, a better manager, a better founder if I let them go. And I said, no, you know, um, instead I, I let them um, help me defer the difficult decision.
0: What a, a very painful, but great thing to learn before starting your next adventure. After that, did you take a beat or were you like, you know, Next day, this is this is the new idea that I have.
1: No, I definitely took a beat because um, one thing I realized with that failure is that I love fashion. I love brand. I love um, how powerful the consumer connection is to fashion. One thing I learned, and this learning took, it wasn't just like one day, it was like a few months, is that I didn't understand the technology that I was building. I didn't deeply understand it. And that, I think, is what led to the site coming down and us not fixing it in time or not allocating enough money to keep it up and running. So I took a a short break where I moved from New York to San Francisco. And I was like, I am going to learn this technology. I'm going to understand the pieces. I may not, you know, ever learn to code, but I'm going to know what I don't know and keep learning. So I did take a, a hiatus to reset my brain to open it up to a world that previously I had not understood, which is the, the tech world. How
2: did you actually learn it? Were you taking classes or what were you doing? Talking to people, just
1: talking to people. The the You know, the weird thing about um, New York and San Francisco is uh, it, it's changed a little bit, but people don't speak the same language. It's like a different culture. Oh, yeah, I
2: know. I'm You guys aware. know this? We very are very well yes. aware.
1: So I didn't know that. And I went out to San Francisco and started talking to people, and, and no one understood what I was saying. No one gets fashion, really. Nope. No one understood what we were doing either.
0: They also—we were told—our earliest investors told us that we needed something called a growth hacker, <laughs> and that was going to be the first hire. And we were like, oh, my gosh, you've never heard of this. Like, people do this thing. And— um, We put out a job description with the title Growth Hacker in New York, and we got, like, no applicants. And we were on a trip to San Francisco and told people we were looking for that. And everyone was like, oh, yeah. Like, you know, my friend's are. I remember that when people were
1: really obsessed with the word growth hacker. Mm -hmm. I think it's gone now, but there was a period of time where, like, you needed to have one or you were done. It sounds like that's what people told you. Yeah, so it's a different world. And so part of it was— Um, what is the language that people are using? And when they say certain words, what do they mean? Mm -hmm. Um, For example, I realized pretty quickly that no one understood what merchandising meant at all. It doesn't even matter if you have merchandise in the company, they don't understand it, nor do they respect it. Because that's the world they don't know, right? If you can't speak product and technology, you won't be taken seriously. Um, if you don't know the key players in Silicon Valley, you won't be taken seriously. So I learned a lot of that stuff, just the values of that subculture out there.
0: You make it sound so easy to jump into something like learning technology because you felt like that was your, your skill set. I think we started our companies. We don't, still don't have a tech background. And we do make an effort to definitely learn that side of the house. But it's not something that comes naturally. And it's still something that we find intimidating. How did you... Were you nervous about taking on a whole new skill set in a place where everyone speaks a different language?
1: Of course, right? It's, it's it, you, you'd probably have to be a little bit crazy not to be a little bit nervous, but I, I would love to correct. I don't, I didn't take on technology. Uh, If you ask anyone at Poshmark, if I'm involved in technology, they'll laugh at you because I'm not. Um, (laughs) But here's the thing is I realized it was a blind spot, right? And I realized if you want to build a company that is at least half technology, then you better respect it and you better surround yourself by people who do understand it. And that was the difference between my last startup and Poshmark.
2: How did you, coming off of something that, that didn't succeed and you're kind of, you're relocating, you're in a new city, you're learning new things. How did you convince people to meet with you?
1: That's a good question I'm still kind of doing that. I think one of the the things about being an entrepreneur that you guys will certainly understand is that no one believes in your idea um, that's just the nature of doing something new if you th- especially from day one right everyone thinks you're crazy um, and then over time people think you're less crazy but people still think you're a little bit crazy So I, I feel like I'm constantly pitching, <laughs> Poshmark, how amazing it is, how amazing our sellers are, and now my my role today is working on expansion. So again, I'm in this role where, uh, no, I know you haven't seen us do it, but we're going to do it, and it's going to be great, and we're going to be successful. So I'm constantly um, painting a story for people of what's what's not yet been developed.
0: All right, let's take a quick break. We talked at the top about making your to-do list smaller. It's tax season, so let's talk about how to check taxes off that list. We've got an idea, H&R Block. They have a service that'll help you get over taxes and get on with your life. We can all appreciate that. It's called Tax Pro Go. Tax Pro Go is made for people who don't want to go to a tax office but don't want to do their own taxes either. Hmm, that sounds familiar. It's definitely us and it might be you too. Here's how it works. You upload your docs and let a tax pro do the rest. That's it. Really. It's the easiest way to get your taxes done for you. So if that sounds good to you, go to hrblock.com slash tax go to learn more. Again, that's hrblock.com slash tax go.
2: So you move to Silicon Valley and you start over. What is Poshmark and how did this idea come to be?
1: Yes. So uh, this idea came um, it's a brainchild of me and my co-founder, um, Manish Chandra, who's the CEO. And his background is he grew up um, in the tech world. And was he was that piece where I was like, I don't understand that. He knew that. Um, and my background, as we've talked about, it was in fashion and merchandising. I understood the consumer. And
2: neuroscience. And neuroscience,
1: too. <laughs> yeah, that plays in a little bit. Uh, and we both had a shared love for, um, for fashion and what it could be. Um, we, ha- we both shared a dream that through technology, we could really change the way that people consume fashion. How did you guys meet? Through networking. We ultimately met because I knew um, an amazing VC out there. And she's like, you know, I want to introduce you to this guy who is just as passionate about fashion. He comes from tech. And uh, simultaneously, Manish had met with her and said, you know, I'm looking to start my next business. And I really want an amazing co-founder that understands fashion. And so we were connected. So
2: we get asked this all the time. And we're always fascinated by other co-founder relationships. Our story is definitely I think unique in that we were friends and then we were roommates and then we started this and we both are you know still running it and yes still friends um but we get asked all the time from people who want to start something you know how do they find their co-founder and you know i found someone who they all are also interested in this idea and you know i like them and like i think we're gonna do it and we're always like be careful like do you really trust them this is like a marriage how did you go from, well, that was a great networking meeting, I'm glad we have a shared love of fashion and what technology could do for uh, for making that easier to bring it home, to, and now I have a business partner, and now we're raising money together. Totally, that's such a good question. I And I liked what you
1: said, that co-founders are so much, it's so much like getting married. Um, you wouldn't marry someone in your like personal life if you just met them and had one date and had a shared vision of something, right? So I absolutely advise don't do that with your professional life either. Um, you have to date. And so that's what Manish and I did is we, um, we co-founder dated for about six months. So we had that initial uh, discussion, but I didn't get to know him until months and months later when we talked about our dreams and what we wanted from a business, like because that's important too. It's not just the idea. It's, it's how are you going to build it? Um, and I realized both of us were kind of different in that we really had this, um, this bias towards people and community empowerment. And that's, I think, um, really influenced how we built Poshmark into what it is today.
0: What is it about fashion that you love?
1: I love that it is the largest form of expression that we have today as as a, a a world community Every day people get up and put something on and and whether you know it or not it's some sort of expression of what's going on inside either um, like today I'm wearing this really big, white, puffy coat. It's way too warm for the weather here, right? But it just shows I'm terrified because I'm a California girl now. I'm terrified of New York winter, right? And that that just says a little bit of something about what's going on. So I love fashion for um, the opportunity it gives us. It's like a canvas to say what's going on.
2: So fashion is is not... it's not like a new space. Like there's lots of different uh, startups that have, have come into to the fashion and try, uh, fashion space and tried to disrupt it in various ways. The idea of consigning or cleaning out your closets. There's been lots of iterations from brick and mortar to other online opportunities. Why is Poshmark different? How did you approach it differently? So you know back. Going back to when Manish and
1: I met, there were a few things we saw that was going on in the world that was super interesting. Uh, The first one is that the iPhone had come out and we were around iPhone like three or four at this point. And the big turning point there is that you could take really good photos with your phone. And so this is when Instagram had just launched was when we were conceptualized Poshmark. And we're like, wow, you can take photos on your phone and post them instantly online and people can talk about it. Um, and that's when we realized that phones were going to be um, a central device or a central um, tenet of, of people's lives going forward. And uh, just the way Instagram changed the way we share photos, we wanted to build something that would change the way people uh, looked at their relationship with their closet. And so we built Poshmark to make it really, really accessible to everyone. And I think that's what makes Poshmark so different from a lot of the other companies or sites that you're talking about. There's many places you can go and buy and sell. Poshmark is the only place that you can go where all you need to do is take a photo and tell a story. And that, that was built. We knew that. We knew that people had time to tell a story, but they don't have time to do another chore. So we had to work really hard over the past seven years or so to take care of everything else that needs to be done in order to run a business. So underneath the the, the app is a huge platform that runs payments, logistics, customer service, shipping, all the things that are not as fun as taking a photo and telling a story.
2: What I'm always fascinated by, because I'll say it again, but I use it a lot, um, and most things I use in my life, I look at like how will this make my day more efficient? Is it doing some? Is it doing all the work for me? Is it saving me time in some way? Poshmark is something that I actually like. I put time into. Like I'm taking the photo, I'm writing the description, I'm continually sharing it. Sometimes I join the parties, <laughs> uh, and. I'm so curious what you put on your neuroscientist hat, knowing that we're in um, kind of a cultural moment of everyone looking for the fastest uh, opportunity of efficiency in their life and, and, you know, as much help as possible in various um, categories. Why do you think Poshmark has become viral? Because it does require energy. It does require attention. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I get asked this
1: a lot. If you have no time and you want to offload a whole box of things from your closet, Poshmark is not the number one place you would go if you don't want to put any work into it. If you want to connect to a community of 40 million people who are telling stories through their photos, through their closets, through their past purchases, through their dreams of what they want to purchase, and you want to change the way you do that for life— and Poshmark is a great place to go. So um, what a lot of people do, and we have 5 million sellers that are doing it, is you are starting a new relationship with a new community of people. It's not just the transaction. It's also the conversations that you have, the parties you join, the new brands that you discover because of people who share them with you. There's so much else going on there. And I think that's why um, our shoppers and sellers are super loyal. They stick around for a really long time. And like you said, because we built everything uh, on to be consumed on the mobile phone, um, usually when people are on Poshmark, they're on seven times a day for 30 minutes a day, which is not typical of shopping apps. It's typical of social media, where you're trying to connect with other people.
0: What do you think that you have brought with you from the first startup into Poshmark that has led to it being so successful?
1: You're asking the difficult questions. <laughs> I see the look that you're giving me when you're about to ask me a hard question. (laughs) Welcome to my life. I see. I see what's going on here. Uh, I think, um, you know, what I learned in my first startup is how blind I was to the things I didn't know. And that will be a constant in my life. There will always be something that I don't know. Many things I don't know. But what I learned that I brought with me to Poshmark is accepting that, there exists a bucket of things I don't know, and I constantly need to be looking for them and um, and not be so proud to think that I know how to run my business. I know how to, you know, I, I don't. I'm, you know, just like you guys, we're doing the best we can to figure it out every day.
0: I think we feel, we feel the same way. Like, there are so many things we don't know. I think at times we are sometimes hyper aware of what we don't know, that we don't give ourselves credit for what, we built. What are you really
1: good at? Oh wow, I'm I'm really good at um, tapping into the stories that people want to tell and helping to bring it to life. Um, that that is why I love my job. Seven years later, you know. So before Poshmark, I hadn't had a job for more than two years at any given point. And now I've been working on Poshmark for seven and a half years, and I'm still so happy because I am flexing that muscle that I was missing in the neuroscience days, which is this creativity to help people build businesses and and not doing it by just teaching them how to um, merchandise or price. There are these hard skills to learn, but there's also this way that uh, what I love what Poshmark is doing is really empowering people to say, you can do it. Everyone can do it. You don't need to have gobs of cash sitting around in your savings account to buy inventory. You don't need to have existing relationships with brand suppliers in order to run a store. Uh, We'll help you with that, but you have to still do the work. Tell your story. So um, that's what I'm really good at, and that's what I love doing every day. What are you stubborn about at work? What am I stubborn about? Um, I can get... um, So like I said, I work on a lot of new ideas, And um, when you work on new ideas, you really don't know. You have a a thesis, you have a direction, you have a vision, but you don't actually know exactly how to do it. And um, I am pretty stubborn about believing that people can do, anybody will and can do difficult things and that we shouldn't baby them, right? And so things like um, if you have... If you don't know how to run a store, uh, we'll take care of the logistics, but you need to tell the story and we'll inspire you, but we're not going to do it for you. And that principle of of really believing in people, empowering them, but not doing things for them is something that I'm really stubborn about because sometimes it's easier just do it yourself. Uh, It's much harder to motivate people to do it themselves.
0: How do you do that as a manager?
1: Well, the first thing is I have to learn to pause when there is a question that needs to be answered or a project that um, someone should volunteer for. Um, most of my career has been spent raising my hand, be like, oh, I can do that. That'll be super fun. Or I know the answer to that. And so the the first thing I had to do is just pause and not let that reaction come out because if you're always doing it then you're not going to harness the power of your team so that's one is just don't say anything for like a few seconds um, and then really focus on um, allowing other people to raise their hand and um, allowing other ideas to come out and help so I've really transitioned my focus from doing it myself to helping shape the ideas through my team.
2: Okay, Daniel. I'm very stressed about something. What? I'm very excited, I should say, that we are about to hit the road for How to Skim Your Life book launch and book tour starting June 10th. The big anxiety for me is we have to pack all of our toiletries, and I just want to make sure that um, you don't forget your Quip. So grab your Quip toothbrush before you hit the road. Oh, I like that. Okay, so we really love Quip. It's this amazing electric toothbrush that's just really also beautiful, not only good, but really nice looking. We're not the only ones who love them. Over 20,000 dental professionals love them too and and back them. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash skim right now, you will get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That is your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash skim. What is your relationship like with your co-founder today? How do you guys divide and conquer? Oh, it's great. So first of all,
1: there's three co-found- there's three other co-founders. So uh, Manish and I are on the business side and then we have two uh, technical co-founders that really do all the work. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so we we have shared things over the years and we have found our rhythm. So Manish is a CEO and he does uh, a lot of CEO type things. Um, and what I what that frees me up to do is I really focus on a lot of the um, strategic expansion. So these are the projects that are really uh, difficult to envision, scary to begin. Um, it requires maybe a year of investment before anyone will stop naysaying it. Um, that's been my role over, over the years. And um, there's been some things that we've done together because they're too freaking hard, like fundraising we did that together because i i can't imagine i mean you, you, you guys, guys are I can't either. you can't do it alone it's so terrible i you know kudos to those you know out there that fundraise on their own it's it's
0: not you know fun. people say
1: like i pray for them i pray for you i <laughs> like i pray for you
0: <laughs> i just don't know how you can do it and stay sane
1: yeah i don't think you do <clears throat> it's it's such a it's something that most people don't have any experience. So you put your heart into something and then you ask people to buy it. It's such such a weird I don't know.
0: And they say no. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> so, and that's the other thing. And they, they say. Don't want no. It. Right.
0: Right. They're like, no, reject. It's not good enough. <laughs> Um, so we've got one more segment. It's our favorite one. Okay. It's a lightning round.
2: Great. Let's do it. All right. You have to answer quickly and succinctly. Ready? What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Neurosurgeon. College major. Biology and psychology. First job. Lifeguard. Worst
1: job. Oh, God. Worst job. Uh, In neuroscience, I had to bring people to get uh, blood drawn, and I hated it. Oof. Worst professional mistake you've ever made. Oh, I mean, folding a company. (laughs) Okay, you win.
0: (laughs) Um, First phone
1: call when you get good news. Oh, um, my boyfriend,
2: Chris. First phone call when you get bad news. Uh, My boyfriend, Chris.
0: (laughs) Sorry, Chris. (laughs) When's the last time you negotiated for yourself?
2: Oh,
1: um, every day. Every day. Sometimes it's um, what we typically call negotiating, which is like verbal. Um, Sometimes it's just like moving a boundary a little bit more towards something I'm comfortable with. Are you good at it? No.
2: What's your go-to interview question when hiring someone?
1: Um, Go-to interview question. Um, what did you do this weekend?
2: To get them to start talking
1: or because you're judging their life choices? (laughs) um, Honestly, to usually get them start talking. um, I I really think that interviews are about getting to know someone. And so if someone's really on there, you know, getting really formal, that's not going to work. How do people know you're
2: stressed at work? She looks at her team.
1: Yeah,
0: they're (laughs) laughing.
1: Unfortunately, I think that people don't know I'm stressed at work because I think I get calmer. Um, but yes, I think I get, I get much calmer. Her team is nodding.
0: (laughs) You can chime in. (laughs) I got that right. I got it right. Okay. Um, what drives
1: you? Oh, I, I, I'm so inspired by the, the entrepreneurs that are on Poshmark. I mean, you guys are killing it.
2: Do I inspire you the most? Yes. (laughs) Um, what is your shameless plug?
1: Oh my God. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. I work on expansion, and so my shameless plug is that if you think you knew what Poshmark was, you don't, because we have expanded our platform to men, to kids, uh, to luxury items, and we have much more stored up our sleeve that we're launching this year. So um, if you haven't tried us yet, come download the app.
2: That was a great plug. Yes, excellent. Yes. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for being here, and congratulations. Thank you. Thanks for having thank me. Thank you.
0: Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of
2: Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at
0: theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M mcom Two M's for a little something extra. Thanks for listening. Before we go, we want to tell you about what we're reading. It's a new one this time, Jean Chatsky's Women with Money, the judgment-free guide to creating the joyful,
2: less stressed, purposeful, and yes, rich life you deserve. In the book, Jean, who is a finance editor at NBC, lays out steps to help women feel confident about your cash, whether that's negotiating a salary or investing. We thought it was super helpful, especially as we are digging into taxes at The Skim. You can find her book in any major bookstore and in our show notes, and you can find our content on taxes at theskim.com. Okay, that's it for this episode. We'll see you back here next week.